0: Crush Performance, your weekly source for sport performance and athletic development information. Get the Crush blogs, podcasts, and performance links at crushperformance.com. Now, here he is, the Crusher. I'd like to start this week with a story. A few years back, I was on a trip from Major League Baseball to Holland. At this point, I'd been there several times, so I was getting to know the landscape and the people quite well. Well, I flew in on a Sunday, and when you come from North America, you arrive over there in the morning. So I think it was 10, 10.30, got my bags, uh, somebody picked me up, and we headed directly over to the Pirates Baseball Club in Amsterdam the club scene over there is amazing and I'm not talking about the discotheques and the dance clubs I'm talking about the sport clubs they are a community epicenter there are teams from the introductory levels of grassroots baseball t-ball all the way up to the men's and women's team that compete for club championships national championships and even European championships and it is Amazing to see the important role these clubs play in the community. Well, on that day, I walked into the final day of the tryouts for the junior national team. They had over 100 players trying out for two or three open spots on the team, which was a fantastic turnout. As I walked around shaking hands and seeing everybody, they were elated with the turnout and the talent level of the players. I observed most of the day as things wrapped up, they invited me into the selection meeting and I was nothing more than a fly on the wall listening in. They were talking about the players, the players they felt were most ready to contribute to their junior national program. And after everybody had agreed, somebody turned to me and said, Jeff, what do you think? And I said, well, I'd certainly love to help put together the program for the junior national team as they go on to take on the world. I said, but what is going to happen to all the players who didn't make the team right now? What's going to happen to them? And they kind of looked at me a little confused. Like, why was I asking about the players who didn't make the team when we were trying to focus on the players who did make the team and what the team is going to be doing moving forward? And eventually one of the coaches said, well, they'll go back to their clubs and play and have fun, just playing the game. And I paused for a second to put together my next statement because I knew it was going to be an important one. I eventually looked at everybody and said, well, you realize you guys just cut probably 60 to 70% of the future men's national team. And they looked at me like, what on earth are you talking about? I said, well, It would make more sense, guys, to certainly support the junior national team as much as possible. Because those are the players that are ready right now, and I get that. But if you look at the players who weren't quite ready right now, or all those players who came out, they love the game. Man, if there was a way that we could support them with some training and some development a little more advanced than they might get going back to their home clubs... It would serve this country and baseball in the country very, very well. And the president of uh, Dutch baseball stood up and said, Jeff, what are you talking about? I said, well, the data has shown us that the world's top performers are for the most part late developers, which means through this age group, you know, 13, 14, 15, 16 years of age, and this was a U18 junior national team, most Top performers don't show an aptitude for high performance outcomes through this age. And that did exactly what I was hoping. It stirred the hornet's nest. Holland went on to open regional academies to help all those players train at a bit higher level. And develop them even though they weren't on the junior national team program. What a brilliant, brilliant thing to do and it has paid off. Holland has since gone on to beat some of the world's powerhouses in international play and all of that was rooted and the real amazing thing is they followed through early versus late developers. This is a very misunderstood part of athlete development and there's a couple of factors involved here. The first one probably being age when it comes to sport. Age is a funny thing because there's more to it than just your time on the clock. That's your chronological age from the time when you were born, the amount of time you've been on this earth. But there's other factors involved here. Biological age would be one of them and training age would be the other. Biological age is an interesting one. Simply because the clock and the calendar says you are 15 years of age doesn't necessarily mean from a physical standpoint, you're 15 years of age. In fact, research has shown us that we can have a difference in chronological age plus or minus three to four years, which means you can have a 15 year old in the body of a 11 or 12 year old, or a 15 year old in the body of a 17 or 18 year old. And that is important, especially when it comes to training And the athlete's ability to compete, where are they at physically in relationship to their chronological age? And then the other one training age is when did they actually start training or playing their sport? And how long have they been active? We have athletes that don't enter the high performance pathways or even the sporting pathways till their mid or late teens. These athletes can still go on to achieve greatness if they have the fundamental movement skills and sport experiences um, in the bank prior to entering a sport, whether it's baseball, soccer, hockey, football, basketball, volleyball, tennis, whatever it might be. We have athletes that enter sports later that can still have incredible success. But that biological age really, really got me early on. Back in the early 90s, I was helping out an elite baseball program, and they had players from 12 years old all the way up to 18, 19, and the college players uh, pushing 20 years old. And it was a great group. All of these players were dedicated to the game, and they all had aspirations of achieving higher levels of play. But one of the things I noticed early on in my time with the group was the fact that we had players who looked young for their age, and we had players who looked old for their age. Take, for example, a couple of 15-year-olds who were in the group. We had 15-year-olds who looked like they were 12 or 13, really young for their age. But we also had 15-year-olds who looked 17 or 18, who had burly, muscle, muscular builds with full beards already. They were old for their 15-year-olds. And it got me thinking, Should we be training these athletes differently? Even though they're the same chronological age, they are not physically in the same situation. And you could tell by the way they played the game and handled the drills we were giving them. The younger players, the young 15-year-olds, just weren't quite ready for some of the drills. The older 15-year-olds were beyond ready and we had to push them further. So I set out to go a little deeper. I started sifting through the research to find out how exactly are you aging your athletes according to their physiological age, their physical age, as opposed to their chronological age. What were the strategies? Was it height? Was it long bone measurements? Was it the rate of their growth compared to their peers? I wasn't sure what exactly the parameters were that would identify what exactly constitutes the physical age as opposed to chronological age. Well, I stumbled across a couple of studies that were done earlier on in the late sixties and seventies. And the researchers were looking at exactly this. And what they did is they took x-rays of the hand to measure the growth plates of the athletes. Very interesting. The reason they took x-rays of the hand is because it's the highest concentration of identifiable growth plates in the body. There's so many growth plates. And if you get the right kind of imaging, those growth plates stand out as lighter little rings in the bones. You can actually measure them to identify how old the athlete is in terms of their bone growth. A very, very accurate way to identify physical age compared to chronological age. So, guess what I did? <laughs> I started asking around to the doctors I was working with to see if there was any concerns about radiation and getting hand x-rays from our players. They were cool with it. Then I went to the coaches and I held a meet a parent meeting uh, with the players there as well, told them what I wanted to do, and every parent signed up. I got images from virtually every single player in the group, and it was fantastic. And once I had the images, I set out to measure the growth plates to identify their actual physical age. And sure enough, we had a range of plus or minus two, two and a half years in virtually every single age group. I think our youngest player at that point was 13 years of age. Our oldest player was 19 years of age. Isn't that fascinating? And again, for me, I started thinking, okay, Well, we have a a 12-year-old who's in the body of an 11-year-old. We have a 12-year-old who is in the same physical age as an average 15-year-old. Do we train these athletes different? Well, we did, and I believe it worked really, really well. Then another thought popped into my mind. What does this possibly mean in terms of player selection and talent ID? Listen, the players who were physically older played like they were older. They trained like they were older. The players who were the same age but physically younger, well, they were younger. They weren't quite as good a players as their peers, their chronological peers, who were physically older. The physically older players at virtually every age group had a physical advantage in the game, whether they were taller, whether they were stronger, whether they were more coordinated, or even whether they just thought the game differently because their physical abilities were different. I mean, think about this. We've talked about it on the show before. And I think the biggest example here, or the best example, rather, is a conversation we had a few shows back revolving around elite talents in sport, those standout players, and I can't help but think of Connor McDavid here as the NHL season gets underway. I think if you watch Connor McDavid play, and I'm fairly good friends with the Oilers and some of the guys in the organization. And I was at the rookie camp in person when um, the Oilers hosted it here in Edmonton. And what Connor McDavid did at that rookie camp, this is before he was in the NHL, was utterly spellbounding. Things I hadn't seen before. It was just so far above the other players that it was almost mesmerizing. Watching him at that rookie camp, he moved faster than anybody on the ice. And you know you've seen it over the last couple of years. If you watch hockey, you can go on to YouTube and get the highlights. Just search out Connor McDavid, great plays, and you will see things you've never seen in hockey before. Well, as I'm watching this kid move around and just do these incredible things at the rookie camp, I thought to myself, man, he moves faster than anybody on the ice. He has to perceive the game differently than anybody on the ice. And I think that holds true for those young baseball players as well. A player who's stronger or can swing the bat faster or can move a little better has a distinct advantage in the game over a player who might be the same age, but two or three years physically younger who can't quite do those things. The player who can can actually see and perceive the game differently because of their physical abilities. Now that doesn't mean that the younger players won't catch up or even surpass those other players. In fact, that's what the research has shown us. So even though these biologically older players may appear to be more talented right now, it doesn't mean they're gonna be more talented down the road. And this works in part and right alongside the concept of the relative age effect. Let's have a look. If you haven't heard of the relative age effect, you can Google it. But it was discovered by Canadian sociologist Roger Barnsley. Actually, it was truly uh, discovered by his wife. They were attending a World Junior Hockey Championship game one day. I think it was the Czech Republic playing Team Canada or something. And they got to the rink early and they bought a program. They got to their seats and Dr. Barnsley's wife was going through the program. And as she got to the player profile page, she paused for a second and said, hey, Roger, what do you notice about these players? And so Dr. Barnsley looks at the stats and the player profiles and goes, well, look, hey, these are, they're all big fellas. I mean, they're all six foot plus, they're all, you know, weighing, they're fairly heavy for their age, you know. She goes, no, 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 look at their ages. He goes, well, you know, it's U18, so, you know, they're all this year or this year, 16 or 17 years of age. She goes, no, no, look at the months. And Dr. Barnsley looked at the months of all the players, and wouldn't you know it, there were uncanny similarities. So they flipped to the other team's profile page. Same thing. Big players, six feet, you know, um, you know heavy players, you know, big guys, the big, big players. You know, they're all, you know, 16, 17 years age. It's a U18 tournament. But the months that those players were born in also had uncanny similarities. Dr. Barnsley goes back and starts investigating this. And sure enough, he coined the idea of the relative age effect. Which means any sport that has a cutoff date for grouping players according to their age, you're going to see this relative age impact. Which means players who are born earlier in the year are almost one year older than players born later in the year. The older players in that year have a distinct physical advantage. Almost one year of growth and development more than the players who are born later in the year. And you see this across every single sport. So if you have a young player who's not quite making the cut on the teams, there's a couple of things you need to look for. Where is your young player in terms of biological age? In accordance to their chronological age. And if you are in a sport where there is a date cutoff, like if you're born um before January 1st of this year, you are in this age group. If you're born after January 1st of this year, you're in the next age group. The athletes who are closest to that cutoff date have a one-year advantage over to the player over the players who are at that tail end of that cutoff date. Does that make sense? It's called the relative age effect. And it has turned out to be a self-fulfilling prophecy for a lot of players. Players who get selected aren't necessarily the most talented players. They might be the players who are more biologically advanced for their age, or they might be the players who are literally a year older in their age group than players who were born closer to the cutoff, giving them a year advantage. And when those players are selected to national teams or rep teams or travel teams or even high school teams, just like we talked about to the guys in Holland, those players get the better coaching. They get more playing time. They get better practice support. And the players who weren't selected go back down and they play the regular rigmarole of the sporting world. It doesn't mean that those players are necessarily more talented. They're just either older or biologically more advanced. How about that? And this is a true phenomenon inside of sport. It's also one of the reasons we're so horrific at predicting future talent because we don't really consider these things. And you know, to be certain, These things can be difficult to identify, but if you look for it, you will see it. And that relative age effect exists in any sport where there is a date cutoff. Just a heads up for everybody out there, be aware. And if you have young athletes who are frustrated because they're not getting selected to the team, make them listen to this podcast. And if you are that athlete listening right now, or if you're the parent of that athlete listening right now, or if you're the coach who is responsible for selecting athletes for your team, please listen, early or late developer. One of the first real documented looks at this was research done by David Hemery in the late 80s and early 90s. He was a sports scientist that set out to find exactly why do top performers become top performers? What makes the great great? So he went around the world and selected 50 of the top performance performers of that time from all different sports. An incredible array of athletes. You know the names of every single one of them because they're historical sporting figures. He went around to each one, got appointments and interviews, and sat down and asked each athlete 50 questions. And inside that array of questions, was some very interesting data on how they developed as young performers. And what he found based on those interviews and the research that he did on the top 50 performers of the late 80s and early 90s was powerful. He reported that of those 50 top performers, the best of the best in their sports, two-thirds were late developers. Listen to that. Two-thirds of the world's top performers in all sports, all different sports were late developers, which means they didn't show any aptitude for high performance outcomes through those critical years of the mid to late teens. Now, as athletes get into their late teens and 20s, again, depending on their biological age and where they lie in the chronological calendar early in the year or late in the year, it starts to wash out a bit. We're able to identify talent and maybe potential future talent better as athletes enter their early twenties, but make no mistake, it is still a massive, massive crap shoot, especially if those athletes aren't inside of a really good developmental system. And there's not many of those, unfortunately, as we travel the globe and look around. It's a lot of survival of the fittest and let's see who rises to the top. That's why you guys hear me say all the time if you listen to the show, I don't think we're seeing the best of the best. Yes, we are seeing some of the world's top performers, no question. But I think as a whole, the talent pool in elite sport could be much, much higher if we paid attention to this stuff and if we actually took our young athletes through the process of development regardless of whether they are advanced for their age or late developers for their age. Can you imagine what would happen if a country actually did it? Well, if you look at Norway, I think this is kind of happening. That's why with a population of what five million people they dominate the winter olympics it's an incredible study in human performance in sport and one that i've been following for years and years and as we approach the next winter olympics we are going to do a deep dive into that country and what they're doing i've been talking to some people over there and it's fascinating and i'm telling you right now It's not rocket science, it's so logical, it drives me crazy. I'm telling you right now, just thinking about it, right? I get so frustrated because it's all right there for us. The bottom line is, for young athletes, and for the parents of those athletes, and for the coaches who are working with those athletes, let's be aware of this stuff, all right? Other research that has come along after Henry's work that was published in his book, Sporting Excellence, What Makes a Champion. Uh, it's a very, very difficult book to find, but worth it. It's such a great read. It goes through all of the questions and all of his research on those top performers, but other studies have supported these numbers saying 50% of top performers, some say 75 to 80% of top performers were late developers. Either way, we know that the majority of top performers probably didn't show promise for high performance in those critical mid-teen years where we're selecting players based on their talent and future talent. It's crazy. The bottom line is the majority of top performers were late developers. One of the reasons that trying to identify talent early is more or less a fool's errand. No one can truly tell. So. For the athletes, don't let anybody say you can't, right? Don't give up. Keep it going. Somebody has to play there. And this is the conversation I had with the Dutch baseball executives and coaches so many years ago. They took it seriously and set out to really, really support every player who wanted to play the game. Just simply a beautiful thing. But if you're like me, that's not where the story ends. Because... I had even more questions. Like, for example, if we're looking at that group of baseball players I was working with, you know, 12, 13-year-olds, all the way up to 19-year-olds, the talented, talented players all striving and entering the high-performance pathways in the game. Very similar to the hockey players I work with, the football players, tennis, badminton, squash, and even the Olympic figure skaters I've worked with. Right, All very, very similar. Different sports, but similar trends. It's everywhere in the world of sport. When I look at these young athletes, knowing what we know about high performers and where they came from, I can't help but think, if all of these athletes were such prodigies through those middle teenage years, where did they go then? If two-thirds of the world's top performers were late developers... What happened to those athletes who were great at those younger ages? Where did they go and why didn't it work out for them? Well, I have some ideas. Let's see if you agree. If most of sport's top performers were late developers, what did happen to those young, phenomenal talents as they progress through the system. Where did they go? There's very little science and data backing up anything in this area of thinking. There's literally nothing out there. So all we can do is speculate. And here's what I speculate. For those young athletes who are really, really good, the prodigies, the captains of the teams, the players who were selected for travel, the AAA players, I think either they were sort of approaching their ceiling of performance, they were so advanced on the biological side, they were sort of reaching their ceiling of performance early on, ahead of everybody else in the group. So at that time, they were the most talented players, no question about it, but they were also approaching their ceiling of development. That's one theory I have, and I think that's probably true for a good number of those players. Another theory I have is, those players were never coached the same. They were the most talented players. They outplayed and outscored and outmoved everybody else in their peer groups. So the coaches never really had to crack down on them or spend time with them or challenge them because they were already better than anybody else around them. So they never really were coached and challenged. And I think that lowered their ceiling of learning. Could it be possible? Again, there's no scientific data backing this up. This is my observations over the years. Let me know if you agree with this or not, or if you have other thoughts. I'd be very interested to hear what you think. But I think that biological age and that ceiling is one reason. I do believe the second reason is, those kids who are really talented younger, at the younger ages, weren't coached the same, so they never truly learned how to learn. And that is a consensus among those players who rose from the depths and the dark spaces of athlete performance to go on to be some of the world's best athletes. The consensus there is kind of revolving around the idea that they had to grind it out. And when they actually learned and persevered, it really, really sunk in. They learned how to deal with failure. They learned how to battle through and persevere. And it's one of the reasons they turn out to be champions. The talented players in those younger years never had to go through those hardships. And I believe that catches up with them. When their peer group start to develop and grow in the late teen years and they catch up and even surpass them, The first thing that might happen is these players who had to grind it out for so many years have learned how to learn. They've learned how to deal with adversity because it only gets harder the higher you go. And these talented players never had to deal with any of that. And then second, right along those lines, and I believe this is true as well. Again, no data or science to back this up, but it's my firm belief that those players are a little embarrassed. They've always been the talented ones. Their parents have probably praised them. Their coaches have probably praised them. Their teammates and peers have praised them because they're always so talented. They've always been so good. Now, all of a sudden, guess what? You're not that good. You're not that talented. The other kids and the peers who you used to be better than are now catching up and surpassing you. That is tough on a kid. That's tough on any athlete. And I don't think we help our athletes handle that properly these are some of my ideas as to why those talented prodigies those young prodigies those young athletes who were selected for the high school teams the rep teams the triple a teams look at the bantam draft in hockey i do not like the bantam draft and i've been vocal about this kids get so stressed out that they weren't drafted in the bantam draft and i'm going hallelujah you don't know how lucky you are Go back and look at how many players who were drafted as 15-year-olds into the Bantam draft go on to play elite hockey. Go back and look at the numbers. I've looked at those numbers, and trust me, you do not want to be one of those numbers. The conversion rate is abysmal. There is very little benefit to being selected in the Bantam Draft, being taken away from your home as a 15-year-old, to go play with 20, 22-year-olds somewhere in another part of the country or in North America. I don't mind recognizing young talent for what it is, but let's make sure it's in context. And this takes us full circle to a couple of conversations we've had in our talent and talent ID series from a couple of years ago. And Dr. Joe Baker, who's now at University of Toronto, is one of our go-to people there. And we're going to have him on again here in the next few weeks to talk about his book, The Tyranny of Talent. One of the things we've talked about with Dr. Baker before is just the, the terrible conversion from junior national teams to senior national teams there is a poor, poor conversion rate. And that has been recited again and again in the research. In fact, most recently there was a study done in Germany that pointed out exactly that, the very same trends. After compiling all of their research, they came up with these results. The statement goes like this. Most successful juniors don't become successful seniors and most successful seniors were not successful juniors. I'll say it again, most successful junior athletes do not become successful senior athletes. And vice versa, most successful seniors were not successful juniors. In one example, they pointed out, 89% of international class under 17 and under 18 athletes never reach the senior levels. And 83% of international class seniors didn't make it to the international class At the U-17, U-18 levels. So basically what it means when you look at the athletes who made the junior national team as compared to the athletes that made the senior national team they were 93% different which means there was little to no conversion either way. The junior national team players didn't convert and make it to the senior national teams and when you looked at the senior national team players that did make it They weren't successful when they were juniors. Just 7% of the athletes were successful at both levels. Very interesting. So much like early specialization, which was last week's show, attempts to identify future talent early is a dangerous game to play. First, we're just terrible at it. And second, it's a moot point because no one can truly tell who will rise to the top. There are just way too many variables involved. And these variables actually change as an athlete ages and develops and learns and matures. So maybe I'll wrap it up with this. One of the greatest meetings I've ever sat in on regarding this type of a topic was at a Major League Baseball tryout or showcase for high school players. Um, Not only were there Major League scouts there, the national team coaches were also attending scouting players for the junior national team. After the workout, Greg Hamilton, who's the head coach for Team Canada, sat the group of high school players down and explained that they're going to be selecting players that they feel are ready to contribute right now at the next level with the junior national team. However, do not be discouraged because moving forward, there will be many ways each and every one of those players can contribute to the national team programs as they move forward in the game. Just because you might not be quite ready... Right now doesn't mean you'll not be ready next fall or even next year. So don't give up. Keep working away and the opportunities will come your way. Those were the words Greg had for those young players. And you could just see a sigh of relief. Every player that I know wants to play for their junior national team. Everywhere in the world. It's a big, big deal. It's also a big stepping stone for future development. But if you don't make it, it's not the end of the world. That was Greg Hamilton's message there, and it was a powerful one. It made me think a lot. That was followed up immediately by a talk with Walt Burroughs, who was a longtime Major League Scout. He reinforced Greg's message saying pretty much the same thing. But he went on to add what I thought was also a very important message. He explained that when he comes out to see young players, he's not looking for finished players. He's not looking for Major League Baseball ready players. What he's doing is trying to get to know the players so when he sees them the next time, he can see your progress and follow you as you work your way through the game. And then he went even one step further and named five or six players who had incredible Major League Baseball careers, They went on to be all-stars, and a couple of them were Hall of Famers. These were undrafted players who just weren't ready at their draft-eligible years. They just weren't showing their talent early. What a great message to send to young players who love the game. So, like our friends back in Holland, for sure, pick the players who you think are ready right now. But... Also support every other player with interest because 60 to 70% of your future greats are being cut from youth sports teams. Before I let you go, I also wanted to touch on one other important topic that's been brought to the forefront of the sporting world by unfortunate circumstance, Aaron Rodgers' Achilles injury. There's a lot of talk right now surrounding the old turf versus natural grass debate. A debate that's been going on, well, since the invent of artificial turf. No question, early renditions of turf were flat out brutal. But technology has pushed turf to new places. Now, back when I was with the Blue Jays, we had the classic AstroTurf style field. And I had to manage those players on a daily basis when we were at home, alternating the workouts from the running and agility, from the turf to things like running the stairs or hopping on a stair climber, an elliptical roar, or even the treadmill. We really had to manage the guys on the turf because it was such a hard surface. Now there's nothing like playing at home. Let's get that straight right now, but the guys would love it when we headed to Fenway or to Yankee Stadium or to uh, Camden Yards where the grass surfaces were just so beautiful. There's nothing quite like real grass. And we've discussed this topic a number of times on the show, but here we are again. If you remember a couple of years back, we talked with Jamie Reed, one of my favorite people in sport. He's the senior director of medicine for the Texas Rangers. We talked to them just as they were getting ready to move into their new stadium because they had decided to go with a turf field. But it wasn't the typical average turf field that we'd been seeing in sport during that era. They worked with the turf companies to develop a new, better turf for the game of baseball, which they did. The playing surface is called a B1K natural system. It employs a natural sustainable fill called geofill. It's basically made of coconut husks and fibers, which is a rapidly renewable resource for one thing. The infill, which kind of acts like the dirt would act in a natural grass field, Um, It's like the little rubber pellets you would see in the typical average turf field. But this infill requires much less water than natural grass. And it's reported to have excellent ball surface and player surface interaction. You know, I'm going to have to follow up with the guys there in Texas to see how the players like it. But in the NFL, the Players Association have been pushing for all grass fields for some time. Their main platform, there's fewer injuries on grass. J.C. Tedder, who is the president of the NFL Players Association, put out a statement recently, and it goes like this. This is a quote. As a rookie player, once I started experiencing both surfaces interchangeably, I began to understand why my teammates disliked the practices on turf. Whenever I practiced on an artificial field surface, my joints felt noticeably stiffer the next day. The unforgiving nature of artificial turf compounds the grind on the body we already bear from playing a contact sport. He goes on to say, We know that players put extremely high levels of force and rotation into the playing surface. Grass will eventually give, which often releases a cleat prior to reaching that injurious load. On synthetic surfaces, there is less give, meaning our feet, ankles, knees absorb the force, which makes injury more likely. That is part of the official statement from the president of the NFL Players Association. And the data supports the anecdotes that you hear coming from the players who say artificial turf is significantly harder on the body than grass. So based on NFL injury data collected from 2012 to 2018, not only was the contact injury rate for lower extremities higher during practices and games held on artificial turf, NFL players consistently experienced a much higher rate of non-contact, lower extremity injuries on turf compared to natural surfaces. Specifically, the data points out players have a 28% higher rate of non-contact, lower extremity injuries when playing on artificial turf. 28%. That is an incredibly high number. And of those non-contact injuries, players have a 32% higher rate of non-contact knee injuries on turf and a staggering 69% higher rate of non-contact foot and ankle injuries on turf compared to grass. Now, these findings are powerful for one reason above all else. They're based on the NFL's actual injury data. Earlier this year, the NFL and the NFLPA tasked artificial turf manufacturers with developing a surface like natural grass that meets the specifications developed by the respective engineering experts. They also challenged cleat manufacturers and shoe manufacturers design to design more innovative footwear that's safer and tailored to both players' needs and to the specific surfaces. That's the power of a really good equipment guy. They adjust and change the shoes based to not only the surfaces, artificial and grass, but the playing conditions on those surfaces, hot, cold, wet, or even snow, right? There's so many things that need to be considered. But can you imagine if not only we develop a better turf, but also a shoe to match that turf, we may be able to zero in on a compromise that's good for everybody. Now, there's no guarantee that the artificial turf manufacturers are going to be able to create a product that provides a surface that's as safe as grass. So the players are saying, hey, let's not sit around and hope that this happens. Let's be proactive and change all fields to natural grass right now. And if something does come around in the shoe industry and the turf industry that meets our guidelines, then we can talk about making some changes. So the one thing that this argument has is data, right? There's injury data we can look at and it's pretty compelling, but you have to be careful because data can be a mixed bag of tricks. Like all research, you can find what you're looking for if you bend and shape things and push it to the right places. For example, in The Lancet right now, you can search this on Google. There's a study, which is an article review of all the articles available looking at injuries on turf versus injuries on grass. And the results of this peer-reviewed published study say that the injuries are lower on turf than on grass. And then there's another report that found two studies monitoring NFL players found no significant difference between the playing surface and Achilles tendon rupture and ACL injury rates. And then in that very same report, it also says results showed that play on synthetic turf resulted in a 16% increase in lower extremity injuries per play than that on natural turf grass. The exact kind of opposite finding in the same paper. So which way do you go? There is similar findings when you look at soccer and there's similar findings. When you look at rugby, there's similar findings. When you look at research, if you look for what you want to be looking for. And that's why at the end of the day, I like the data that's based on NFL injury data. You can see the actual reports of injuries that are happening in the game, what surface they happen on, and you can go back and look at the video to see how each and every one of these videos, or injuries rather, actually happened. That's the kind of data I like. So right now, I'm sticking with the data coming from the Players Association, not all this other stuff you're finding online, because actually, unless you look really, really deep into the methodologies of each and every one of these studies, you can't be sure it's actually legitimate, right? But another place I might look to get some serious data is FIFA. They're very, very serious about their playing surface, but they do allow turf, and they have very, very strict turf Standards. Natural grass, of course, is preferred, but the right turf is acceptable if you pass a two-step approval process, which includes lab testing and then field testing. It's very strict and you have to go to great lengths to get approved by FIFA to have their star players play on the surface. There's also a hybrid grass, which is a combination of turf and real grass, which is very, very popular in Europe, especially where the climates are shaky, right? Where you have snow, rain, and changes of season. These hybrid grass surfaces can actually be very, very popular early in the spring or late into the fall when grass fields just aren't accessible. That's one of the reasons that, you know, for Northern climate countries and sporting organizations, turf can actually be a godsend, but we still want to make sure we mix in the grass. At least that's my opinion. The arguments for turf, are against grass. Grass takes so much water, right? There's pesticides, herbicides, fertilizer. You have to cut the grass and then you have to have sun on the grass. The growing uh, seasons might be short or the grass might be inconsistent. Eli Manning for crying out loud has said on TV that he feels turf is more consistent. And that's a legitimate argument when you look at these um, turf fields that are in these Uh, Multi-season climates where there's rain, snow, cold weather, warm weather. Plus, turf has these forever chemicals. It can be very, very hot. And it can also be very unforgiving, leading to greater injuries. So the debate rages on. We actually have these types of conversations with all of our athletes when they're changing playing surfaces. Like our tennis players who go from grass to clay to the hard court or our basketball or court athletes who are changing courts or going from outside to inside training, our soccer players who go from outdoor soccer to indoor soccer, Um, our hockey players who are running on the track during the off season. Same thing with our Nordic and snow athletes. Anytime there's a change of surface, we actually work that transition into the training program. There has to be a period of transition there, even for youth athletes and high school athletes, and not just the surface, but also when you're changing your shoes. Be very, very aware of new shoes. We actually make sure we have a mandatory break-in phase where they are wearing these new shoes around the house before they actually wear them in training or competition to avoid blisters or change of stress through the ankle and knee. It's very, very important. So beware of any change of surface or new shoe. Test it break it in, start slow, and build up. Build up tolerance and familiarity with the new surface or the new shoe. An athlete's interaction with the ground is one of the most important components of top performance. Whether it's dirt, ice, snow, grass, hardwood, asphalt, or clay, top athletes interact with the ground better, period. Getting familiar with and adapting to new surfaces, shoes, and environments is just part of the game if you're thinking like an athlete. I'm Jeff Kershell. The Crush Performance Podcast is recorded right here in the Crush Studios. Our distribution partner is Radio Influence Digital Media. Website and educational material is produced and directed by Debbie Kershell, Miss Crusher. The music, graphics, and video design by Noah Alexen at Nolexen Visual and Sound. This is season 18 of Crush Performance. Get the Crush archives and subscribe to the show to get it each and every week at jeffcrushell.com. And if you have any questions, comments, or smart remarks, write to me. We answer every single message we get. Info at jeffcrushell.com. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Have a fantastic week, and we'll talk to you next time right here on Crush Performance.